Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 234. It's titled, Index, But Don't Herd. Yesterday, Jeffrey Gunlack, founder of Double Line Capital, said on CNBC, quote, I'm not at all a fan of passive investing. In fact, I think passive investing has reached mania status as we went into the peak of the global stock market. I think, in fact, that passive investing and robo-advisors are going to exacerbate problems in the market because it's hurting behavior. I wouldn't advise anyone to be a passive investor. Gunlack said, my strongest advice is to not invest in passive U.S. equity funds. Gunlack's words were strong enough that Vanguard felt like they needed to issue a statement to CNBC. Vanguard, one of the largest, if not the largest investment firm in the world, primarily built on index funds. Their statement says, while Mr. Gunlock may enjoy pointing fingers, the data simply does not support his claims. Index funds own a modest 15% of the value of all global equities, and the strategy accounts for less than 5% of the exchange's total trading volume. In June, Pension and Investments issued some data showing that As of June 30th, $6.42 trillion of U.S. stocks were passively managed, a 16% increase from the previous year. And looking at the overall size of the U.S. stock market as measured by the market capitalization of the Wilshire 5000, that $6.42 trillion represents about 24% of the U.S. stock market. So indexing is big, but it's not over half of total assets. And we've done episodes on what happens as more and more, what could happen if more and more people index. But I want to focus in today's episode on this idea of herding, that indexers, there's just one type and they herd. Here's Philip Grant. He writes the newsletter Almost Daily Grants. He writes, while passive investing has a cost advantage over active investing, the indexing movement is still subject to general laws and flaws of the investment business. Perhaps most importantly, its customers tend to act in herds and make poor decisions at major turning points. Is that what we are as indexers? We just follow the herd, follow the crowd? I don't think so. I managed investments professionally for over 15 years. I've continued to, and the entire, my entire investment career, there's been this, either you're for indexing or you're against indexing. 
And it's not binary like that. I think indexing has a role in our investment portfolios. But I think there's ways to go about it that we're not following the crowd, that we're not just herding in and out and making the worst possible decision to get out, for example, of the stock market after it has fallen 50%, but that we can be more cognizant investors in recognizing what the numbers say, in supporting indexing, but not everywhere. And there's ways to go about indexing that you're not just hurting or following the crowd. Last month, John C. Bogle, Jack Bogle, founder of Vanguard, what some consider the father of indexing, wrote an editorial for the Wall Street Journal with the title, Bogle Sounds a Warning on Index Funds. He wrote, if historical trends continue, a handful of giant institutional investors will one day hold voting control of virtually every large U.S. corporation. Public policy cannot ignore this growing dominance and consider its impact on the financial markets, corporate governance, and regulation. These will be major issues in the coming era. Three index fund managers, he continued, dominate the field with a collective 81% share of index fund assets. Vanguard has a 51% share, BlackRock 21%, and State Street Global 9%. Such domination exists primarily because the indexing field attracts few new major entrants. He then went on and, and discussed ideas for better governance as these big index players continue to get a larger and larger market share. Now, I'm not going to discuss those specific things in this episode. I'll link to the article in the show notes, or as a member of my free insider's guide, you have already received that link as well as other valuable content I pr provide just to that email list, a, an essay I do each week. If you haven't signed up already, you can do that at moneyfortherestofus.com. In the article, Bogle touched on or mentioned a, another article by John C. Coates, the fourth of the Harvard Law School, and it was titled, The Future of Corporate Governance, Part 1, The Problem of 12, and the 12 just being sort of the dominance of some of these players. But he, he pointed out, he raised the question, the first index fund was started by, by Bogle in the mid-70s, and yet it's taken a long time for indexing, what, it has 24% of U.S. market share? Why? Why does it take so long? Here's what Coates says. The first indexation reflects the slow but steady victory of a simple set of financial ideas. Few investors can beat the market, and few among those who cannot can identify those who can, so that buying a full array of available stocks generally earns the highest risk-adjusted return, particularly net of investment cost, such as advisory fees. Indexing, and we'll look at some of the numbers, does better than active management. Not all the time, but it's very difficult for investors to identify beforehand a active manager that can 
outperform. And so then he raises the question, well, why did it, again, why did it take so long? He writes, it may simply take a long time for basic wisdom, such as the idea of diversified passive investing, to penetrate the minds of most retail investors, most of whom are never trained in even the basics of finance. While a simple idea, indexing faces several battles. One is overconfidence. We feel like, well, maybe you can't or somebody else can't pick an active manager or even a stock that will outperform, but I can. So we feel overconfident in that ability. A misplaced trust. We want somebody that can outperform and believe that they can, and we trust that they will. And the third is n- neglect of the cumulative effect of advisory fees, which are typically expressed in annual percentages of asset under management. In other words, the fees, we, we just look at the fee and we don't realize that that, that 1% fee, how difficult it can be to overcome that if you're being an active stock selector, an active stock selector. All of those reasons, he points out, may be viewed as difficult to displace heuristics. In other words, rules of thumb that slow the diffusion of what is a seemingly seemingly compelling case for passive investing, at least from most retail investors. We have rules of thumb. Sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. And this overconfidence in our stock picking ability or somebody else's stock picking ability and not recognizing the drag that fees and other investment costs can have on performance has made it difficult to displace this idea or to just to take over that indexing just hasn't gotten that big of control. He also points out that you're seeing more gain now that many pension plans and 401ks, endowment boards are dedicating a larger portion of their of the options to to indexing. Back in the 90s and 2000, oftentimes 401k plans, particularly smaller ones, these defined contribution plans U.S. investors participate in, they didn't have an indexing option. It was all active mutual funds. Now you're seeing that less and less. Finally, he writes, once a specific investor realizes the case for indexing, or once an institutional switch of this kind has been made, inertia in the absence of compelling and true counter-narrative to bring them back to active management creates the conditions for the slow but steady spread of indexing. This isn't going to reverse, I don't think, and he doesn't think that either, Coates, because there isn't compelling evidence to suggest you should not index your portfolio. Despite accusations from Gunlack and Grant that it's hurting behavior, Those aren't arguments against indexing. Those are arguments against how individual investors deploy indexing. We can use passive management and not be following the crowd. How do we do that? Well, first, we don't want to index everything. We have to know where indexing has worked 
and where active management has done better. Morningstar, every six months, produces a report called the Active Passive Barometer. And instead of just comparing active managers to an unmanaged index, which isn't really a fair comparison, they compare active managers in a particular strategy or style to the exchange-traded funds and index mutual funds of the same style. And so it's an apples-to-apples comparison. The fees and the trading costs are taken out of the index funds and ETFs, and they're taken out of the active manager. And then, so they, they do this, they look across 36 unique active and passive U.S. funds, about $11 trillion. And if you look at that report, the evidence is overwhelming in most asset classes. U.S. large blend, for example, for the 15-year and 20-year period, less than 20% of active managers outperform. It just, they don't. In That's U.S. large cap. The large cap value growth is the same way. Mid cap, same thing. The best in mid cap is mid cap growth. 23% of mid cap growth managers outperform. The other ones, no. Blend, less than 10% of mid cap blend. There was this idea then small cap stocks, U.S., that there the managers had an edge. But for the 15-year period, only 18.5% of small cap blend managers outperformed passive options, 5% of small cap value, and 8% of small cap growth. So it's pretty clear in the U.S. side, it just doesn't pay to have an active manager. Now, they do a breakdown. They look at lowest cost funds and highest cost funds. And even the lowest cost funds, the best performance over the 10-year period for low cost funds was in U.S. small value, where 37.5% of the lowest cost funds outperformed passive options over the past 10 years. So that, that seems like a pretty solid case. Where things get a little more interesting is in non-U.S. stocks, what they classify as foreign. For the 10-year period, half of, well, 49% of large-cap value stocks or large-cap value managers have outperformed the ETF. But the lowest fees within large value, 60% have outperformed. But still... Not great odds if you're trying to figure out which manager will do better. But in small cap blend, well, it's no, no, small mid cap blend. So just basically smaller or mid cap non-US for the 10 years, 93% of active managers have outperformed their, their passive alternative. Now that, that shocked me. I, I did not realize it was that high. Now, that's the 10-year, though. Here's where it gets challenging. Over the five-year, only 35% have. So has something shifted? Or are we just going through a period where passive is doing better? And, and five years is a long time to hold on to an underperforming manager. Believe me, I know. I worked with endowment foundation boards. 
their time horizon typically was three years. If a manager was underperforming for three years, there, there was a lot of pressure to terminate that manager. But that's an interesting statistic. Perhaps there's better options within small cap non-U.S. What about Jeffrey Gunlack's category? Intermediate term bond. The lowest cost, lower priced intermediate term bond managers, 62.5% have outperformed passive alternatives. Now, if we just look at all of them, 49% have. So your odds are better on the fixed income side, which is why, I mean, I invest and have invested with double line. Corporate bond space also, 62.5% of corporate active bond managers have done better than their passive alternatives. So if we're not going to be herders and just follow the crowds, you don't have to passively manage your entire portfolio. Perhaps there's an option there on the bond side. I use a, a for the bank loan space, I use I have consistently used an active bond manager because I believe they can select less risky bonds. The second thing that we can do to to index but not necessarily be a crowd follower is underweight the biggest names in the index. One of the critics of, of indexing point out that FANG stocks of so Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Apple's Google make up just a huge portion uh, of index. Grants points out that 257 ETFs own Apple. And so passive investors have heavy exposure to these winning, so far, large cap technology stocks. And their fortunes are very much tied to how the economy is doing. But we don't have to own those in those weights. And we shouldn't because they'll probably underperform. I Back in episode 226, I referenced a study by Research Affiliates. It was called, well, the, the episode was on asset bubbles. And the article was, yes, it's a bubble, so what? But they pointed out that the 10 largest market cap tech stocks in the United States in the year 2000 comprised 25% of the S&P 500 index. And over the next 18 years, not a single one of those stocks beat the market. That's likely to happen for the biggest tech stocks today. Things change. More competition comes in. So I went through the exercise to see, well, in my portfolio, if you look, Fang, the Fang stocks, and if we include Microsoft, they comprise 7% of the global stock market. My portfolio, I have 10 different funds, ETFs or funds. Only one of them is active. The rest are passive. But given my weightings in emerging markets and non-U.S., it's only one, those, those stocks, those fangs plus Microsoft make up only 1.2% of my portfolio. And I'm comfortable with that. And it's still primarily passive. So that's a way you don't just have to own the market and, and have big bets on those big tech, big cap technology stocks. You can, you can adjust the ETFs and index funds you own so you don't take such a big bet. A third thing we can do is to add non-index return drivers to our portfolio. Something that diversifies, that isn't strictly indexing, that has a, a different 
return stream. Now, to do that, though, we have to, to step back and ask, what will it take to be successful with this investment? What's driving it? And if it's trying to outsmart the market, then that probably isn't something we want. We need to be very specific. Here's this non-index return driver to my portfolio. And here's why I think it will generate a return and what it will take to be successful with that particular investment. Before we continue, let me pause here and share some words from this week's sponsors. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. In August of this year, I invested in a, a real estate investment trust. It's called Gladstone Land Corporation. I hadn't heard of them. This was brought to my attention by a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. We did an episode on the REIT trying to understand, well, what's the return driver? What will it take to be successful? Gladstone buys farms. They invest in farms. They own fruit farms, nut farms, fresh produce. So these are not industrial row crops. These are high-valued type healthy fruits and vegetables. 35% of their holdings are organic. It's GMO-free. 
So they own 83 different farms around the country and nine different states, 19 different growing regions. And they buy the farms, and then they lease them out to farmers that operate in the area. Their farms overall yield about 5.4%. In addition, they get some crop sharing payments. So based on how the, the harvest goes, they get some payment about that. So I bought it. It was interesting. What did it take to be successful? Well, they needed to continue to operate these farms. The dividend yields around 4%, a little higher than 4%. This is a different return driver. I own some farmland privately, but I'm not growing. I don't really get much money. I'm that some hay grows on it, but I don't get much. I'm certainly not getting a 4% yield, mainly because I don't charge the farmer anything to grow the crops. That's how unproductive it is. I just say, here, you grow some hay on our land and keep the weeds down. And, that, and that's our trade-off. But in this case, it will be successful if they're able to continue to grow these crops. Now, the I bring it to your attention because the, the REIT, Gladstone, it just fell 6% last week. And I thought, what in the world is going on? A member brought it to my attention. Well, they decided they were going to issue more stocks, which means my holdings would get diluted. And the stock fell 6%, and they were issuing the stock at a price lower than the, the price that the stock had been trading at. And they do that because they know shareholders are going to be diluted and that the stock's going to drop. Now, why would they issue new stocks? Well, in order to grow, they have to borrow money, but they can't borrow 100% to buy a farm. And they're only generating a 5% return because cropland's not high return investment. It yields something, but it's not 10, 20%. So they use leverage and they use equity to fund these new farm purchases. They're about 57% loan to value ratio in terms of their farm. Now I sat in on a webinar with David Gladstone. And what I really liked is he was very clear what it took to be successful and the bet that we were taking when we buy his stock or the company's stock. And the bet is that they can maintain the spread. What are they paying in terms of interest on their debt versus the yield that they're getting on their leases? And if the spread is decent, then they can do another deal. And if the spread isn't, then they have to walk away. And if interest rates go up too much, the value of the land falls and they're not going to be able to continue this. And so their, their debt's fixed rate, but it's very clear what is the return driver. And that's very different than buying an index fund whose returns are going to be driven by certainly the cash flow and the earnings growth in terms of the growth in the economy, which will drive the earnings growth, what investors are paying for it. This is a more specific bet. This is on 80 farms and, and the ability of a management company to, to manage this farmland and buy others. Very, very specific. And so we can do specific bets like that. Now, I, my investment's not very big at all because it is so concentrated. The reason I invested is the value of the farmland on a net asset value was greater than the stock price. So it was selling at about a 15% discount 
to the net asset value. So I kind of knew here's what the assets are worth. I'm getting a discount. I believe it's still selling at a discount. And I, I am by no means recommending the stock. But I give it as an example of a specific uh, of a return driver, something that's non-indexing. The final thing that we can do then is it's just don't follow the crowd. Don't follow herding behavior. Don't rush in to the fang stocks when everybody else is buying them. Be aware of investment conditions. What are valuations? U.S. stock market, and we've talked about it, is selling at a price-to-earnings ratio on a cyclically adjusted basis of 27, even despite the sell-off. That was as of the beginning of December. Much greater than its long-term average. And we've talked about, well, maybe there's reasons why it should be more expensive than its long-term average. But by that much, relative to non-U.S. or other options. So we just need to be aware when we invest, in an, even in an index fund, how's it valued? What are the conditions? What has to happen to generate the return? And what is a reasonable return assumption based on the dividend yield, its cash flow, how that cash flow is growing, and what investors are willing to pay for that cash flow? Are they paying a premium or do they not want to own it at all? So I think we should index a portion of our portfolio, a large portion of our portfolio. Those Morningstar numbers speak to themselves. But we don't have to be herders. We don't have to herd and follow what everybody else is doing. And to do that, we can, we can know where indexing works and where it doesn't. It hasn't worked as well. Perhaps in small cap non-US, you use an active manager there. Perhaps using an active manager in high yield bonds or regular bonds where you believe that there's value there and they have outperformed because there the probabilities are in your favor. You can underweight the biggest names of the index. If everyone's crowding in, you can weight your index funds differently, have more non-US and have a smaller weight. Calculate how much do you have in the FANG stocks like I did. You can add additional non-index return drivers, additional options out there, private options, not necessarily publicly traded, but private options and find other ways. Now, again, you have to look at what drives the returns. And success can't be dependent on outsmarting other investors. It's got to be cash flow. There's some room for some speculation, gold, art, for example, but recognize that isn't cash flow driven and depends on others paying more in the future. So you don't want that. That can't be the workhorse of your portfolio. Got to be cash flow generating investments or investments where the cash flow is increasing as earnings grow. And finally, we don't want to follow the crowd. Be aware of investment conditions, control our emotions. And, and the way to not herd is to just not herd and be aware of what everyone else is doing and, and what's, their, what, what's the narrative driving the market and do something different if, if that narrative's off. So that's episode 234. As I mentioned, you can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation, not provided investment advice. Simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week. 